This is Christian Knutson and John K. Wilson with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers and Democratic state lawmakers reintroduced legislation today to repeal Wisconsin's 1849 criminal abortion ban. WISP Politics reports the measure would effectively return abortion rights in the state to what they were before the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to overturn Roe v. Wade last summer. The 1849 law bans almost all forms of abortion, including in cases of rape and incest. Speaking at the state capitol earlier today, Evers said the Democrats' bill would, quote, simply restore access to safe legal abortion in Wisconsin. The bill mirrors one Democrats introduced last year that stalled in the Republican-controlled legislature. GOP lawmakers are not expected to back this reintroduced measure. The University of Wisconsin-Madison has extended its Teachers Pledge program for another academic year, reports the Capital Times. This program gives the amount of in-state tuition to School of Education students who commit to work three to four years in Wisconsin schools after graduation. The Dean of the School of Education, Diana Hess, says this program is a necessary response to a shortage of teachers in the state. The program keeps teachers in Wisconsin and lessens the high turnover rate for education students after graduation. Over 550 students have been part of the teacher pledge since its launch in 2020. Dane County and the National Association of Zoos and Aquariums must pay $2.8 million to a former researcher who accused Henry Vilas Zoo director Rhonda Schwetz of sexually assaulting him in 2018. A draft of the civil suit settlement obtained by the Wisconsin State Journal today alleges that Schwetz assaulted the employee during a 2018 work trip to Seattle and later retaliated against him for reporting it. Under the settlement, neither Schwetz nor the researcher admit to any wrongdoing, though it does acknowledge that Schwetz was verbally reprimanded by the National Association. After today's decision, 26 county supervisors penned a letter to County Executive Joe Parisi today calling for Schwetz to be removed from her position as the zoo's executive director. An effort to build a $50 million development for single women and families that will also include an apartment complex with affordable housing is getting a boost from the feds. $4 million in federal housing is headed locally to help efforts for a new Salvation Army shelter and community center in downtown Madison. The center is designed to help families transition to permanent housing and will also include wraparound services. U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin and U.S. Representative Mark Pocan, both Democrats, pushed for this funding. They celebrated with Madison Mayor Sacha Rhodes-Conway at a ceremony yesterday. And now, on to today's top stories. Wisconsin Supreme Court candidates Dan Kelly and Janet Protasewicz met in a heated debate today, just two weeks before the April 4th election. They each outlined their staunchly different approaches on a range of issues, including abortion, redistricting, and crime. WORT reporter Abigail Levins has this recap. Wisconsin Supreme Court election is technically nonpartisan, but that hasn't stopped Democrats from championing Janet Pronesewiz and Republicans from endorsing Daniel Kelly. Both candidates have accused each other of bias, and both say the court should have a recusal law. Campaign spending on this election has broken records for highest ever spending, on any state Supreme Court race, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Both candidates have spent millions of dollars attacking each other in political ads. They continued to attack each other during the one and only debate between Protasewicz and Kelly, hosted by WIS Politics, the Wisconsin State Bar, and Channel 3000. A major topic on the minds of voters right now is abortion, and it was a major topic in the debate. Protasewicz clearly stated her views. My personal opinion is that should be the woman's right to make the reproductive health decision, period. She pointed out that Kelly is endorsed by leading anti-abortion groups, including Wisconsin Right to Life, Wisconsin Family Action, and Pro-Life Wisconsin. But Kelly denies having any stance on abortion. I had no conversations with those organizations about how I would rule on any issue, including the abortion issue. Protasewicz said she is 100% sure that Kelly would support the 1849 abortion ban in Wisconsin if he is elected. Both candidates support the idea of a recusal law. That would prevent justices from hearing cases where they might have a bias. Kelly accused Protasewicz of bias towards the Democrats because of their endorsement of her. 
but Protesté was promised to recuse herself of any cases dealing with someone who contributed to her campaign. She added that Kelly was on the Republican payroll until December 2022. Kelly promptly denied this, saying they were just a client. He then said that Protesté was a liar, which he said repeatedly throughout the debate. Yeah, that's absolutely not true, once again. So this seems to be a pattern for you, Janet. Just telling lies about me. Another key issue on the table was redistricting. Democrats have had a plan to bring new maps to the state's high court should liberals gain a majority with a protege was win. She took a strong stance on the issue, saying it's obvious that Wisconsin maps are unfair. You look at Congress, you know, we have eight seats. Six are red, two are blue. In a battleground state. So we know something's wrong. We know that this least change rule certainly inhibits people's ability to cast a vote and a vote that counts. Kelly, again, would not give a stance on the issue. He said that maps are the job of the legislator and not the courts. Technically, it is the job of the legislator to draw district maps. But maps have gone to the Supreme Court in the past two cycles. In 2011, the New York Times reported that the Wisconsin Supreme Court upheld maps that favored Republicans. And in 2022, the maps again went to the Wisconsin Supreme Court to settle debate between Governor Evers and the Republican-led legislator. After the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, the Wisconsin Supreme Court rejected Evers' change to the gerrymandered maps, according to Channel 3000. Today marked the first and last debate between the two candidates before the election in exactly two weeks on April 4th. The winner of this spring's election will determine the ideological majority of the court. Meanwhile, the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign reported yesterday that candidate and group spending is at over $20.2 million for this election. This is a record for money spent on any state or national judicial race. Meanwhile, early in-person voting opened today and will close on April 2nd. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. Today is the start of early voting for the spring election. While some choices apply to everyone in the state, many other races are much more local. And sometimes what's local can be quite unintuitive. WORT reporter Jessica Lindahl talked with one local listener who had some questions about his ballot. Today is the start of early voting with a bevy of local and state candidates and referenda on the ballot. As he previewed his ballot to prepare, one WORT volunteer asked us, why does his ballot look different than expected? I spoke with Jonah Chester, who lives on the far west side of Madison. I live in Middleton. I have a Middleton address. It says Middleton on my address. Uh, But for some reason, my ballot shows both Middleton school board candidates and Uh, the Madison mayoral race, and that I'd be represented by a Madison alder person. Chester said he was perplexed by the mix of candidates. So I get to vote in the Madison mayoral race, and I get to vote in the Madison alder person District 9 race. But what's weird is I also get to vote in three different Middleton Cross Plains area school district races, which is very odd. Election officials say that's actually normal. Depending on where you live, you might see a mix of school districts and other local races represented. Scott McDonald is the Dane County Clerk. So for this spring, we have over 200 different ballot styles because of aldermanic districts not matching up with school districts. County board and city council don't match up. McDonald adds that his office takes proper measures to sort the variety of ballots for each voter for a clear election process. For local clerks, local elections in the spring tend to be more complicated than elections in the fall. Within the city of Madison, there's people who go to Windsor, they go, you know, they go to DeForest, they go to Middleton, Cross Plains. So there are Madison wards, for example, that are in different school districts. And in some townships, like the town of Cottage Grove, there'll be four different school districts in that uh, township where the residents will go. And that becomes a difficult job for my office to code that election properly and make sure there aren't, you know, people aren't in the wrong sort of bucket as, as uh, what your ballot should look like. McDonald says these political boundaries evolve over time, and that's usually due to annexation when a city incorporates new properties into its city limits. So you'll have different different styles, and, and that's really common. And a lot of that's driven by annexation. So of Madison, you'll see Madison annex a farm field, and then we got to change, even though there's nobody in there, they will eventually, right? Um, you know, that in the system to accommodate, that's now going to be a city alder where you vote there. Maybe there's one farmhouse, then and now they're going to go from voting in the town of Middleton or something to Madison. 
Early in voting kicked off today and will wrap on Sunday, April 2nd. You can register to vote at your early voting location until March 31st. And if you choose to vote on Election Day in exactly two weeks on April 4th, you can register at the polls then. In the meantime, you can preview your ballot at My Vote Wisconsin. That's myvote.wi.gov. And if you have a question about your ballot, reach out to your local clerk. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jessica Lindahl. The spring election is exactly two weeks away, and with 14 competitive alder seats on the ballot across Madison, candidates are busy going door-to-door to spread the word to their neighbors about where they stand. But an area realtors group has injected thousands upon thousands of dollars into these races, supporting a handful of specific candidates across the city. Not only were these candidates unaware of the tens of thousands spent in support of their campaigns, but some even say that the information being distributed by the group is inaccurate. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has the story. A Wisconsin-based group of realtors have spent nearly $170,000 on nine different alder elections across Madison. The group, an advocacy arm of the Realtors Association of South Central Wisconsin, or RASCW, has spent around $18,000 each for nine different alder candidates, mostly going towards mailers and robocalls in support of the candidates. The money is not being given to the candidates directly as campaign contributions, and they have no control over how the money is spent. The RASCW is a trade association of realtors in south-central Wisconsin and supports the Realtors Political Action Committee. The RASCW is not legally allowed to coordinate their campaign activities with the candidates, meaning that many of those they supported were completely unaware of the thousands of dollars spent in support of their campaigns until this week. While the RASCW did not respond to WORT's request for comment today, they told Isthmus that they decided to dip into Madison's alder races to, quote, support policies and candidates that will help solve Madison's housing crisis, end quote. The deadline for candidates to file campaign finance paperwork is next Monday, so the exact amount each candidate has spent on the race themselves is not known. Brad Hinkfuss is running for Alder in District 15. While he says that he himself has spent around $4,000 in the race, the RASCW has spent $20,000 supporting his campaign through mailers and robocalls to potential voters. Hinkfuss says that it's troubling that this amount of money is being sunk into a local election without any input from the candidates themselves. I realize that all of a sudden someone is out there broadcasting a message that I have no control over, that I never authorized, and that I never had anything to do with. Um, And so you have this kind of sinking and, and frankly, creepy feeling that you're no longer in control of your campaign. So it's It's very alarming to me. Julia Matthews, running in District 12, has been supported by the RASCW with over $20,000. Matthews says that, while she has been calling for an increase in affordable housing in Madison, she never asked to be supported by the group, and that she fears the money will end up doing more harm than good. This situation is frustrating because, again, you know, I I didn't know about it, I didn't ask for it, but it's definitely going to put a mark on my campaign, regardless of what happens on April 4th. Davey Mayer is running for Alder in District 6. While the RASCW spent $20,000 supporting his campaign, he says that he first heard about their support when he received a mailer himself. I just want to say that I strongly oppose um, these types of outside spending, and not only should we attempt to limit the activities of these groups, but it's yet another reason that we should have publicly financed local political campaigns. Mayor says that while he has not yet filed his final campaign finance report, he estimates that he spent around $4,000 on the race thus far. The RASCW spent big money on incumbent alders as well. District 16 alder J.L. Curry had nearly $22,000 spent on her behalf. She tells WORT that she was surprised to learn that the group had spent so much money to support her campaign and that she strongly supports changes to state and federal laws to take excessive money out of campaigns. District 9 Alder Nikki Conklin had the smallest amount of monetary support at just under $9,000. Conklin told WORT that she does not support special interest groups funneling money into local politics, and she's not beholden to this or any group. Two other alders, Charles Miadze and Mike Verveer, were also supported by the RASCW, but did not respond to WORT's request for comment by airtime.
Some of the information on the mailers is even flat out wrong. John Ugare, who is running in District 19, told WORT that his name was misspelled. WORT was not able to see a mailer to confirm the spelling of his name. The RASCW spent exactly $20,000 on mailers, robocalls, and online advertising for Ugare's campaign. Derek Field, who is running in District 3 and who the RASCW spent over $18,000 to support, had mailers sent out saying that he was running in the wrong district. Ugare told WORT in a statement that he is not a fan of large amounts of money being pumped into local races and that he first learned of the RASCW's efforts to get him elected through a local neighborhood listserv. Field 2 says that he was surprised by the level of outside spending in the race and that he supports reasonable campaign finance reform to balance the power of outside groups. The large influx in spending on local elections has caused concerns from both Madison residents and city alders. In a post on his official Alder blog yesterday, District 6 Alder Brian Benford called the spending, quote, sickening. Essentially, it's stripping away the veneer and any illusion, and they're buying a race. That uh, when they spend in a district more than both candidates organically raise, then that changes the whole dynamics of our local elections. But Ben Ford also inaccurately described the funding as being given directly to the candidates. Ben Ford took down the post yesterday after being informed that it was in violation of a city policy barring the use of the city platforms for political purposes. Ben Ford says that he recognized the error and posted his thoughts on social media instead. It's not the first time outside advocacy groups poured money into local elections. Isthmus reports that in the 2021 spring election for Common Council, the nonprofit organization A Better Dane County spent nearly $30,000 on campaign mailers for four candidates. That election also saw the Save Madison pack by billboards across the city, attacking four sitting alders for supposedly wanting to defund the police. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wookie Hout. As the final two weeks of the spring election tick down, we're turning our attention to a race for Alder on the Isthmus. Madison's 6th district includes neighborhoods on the near east side, Tenney Lapham, Willie Street, and Sassy, which is short for the Shank Atwood Starkweather Yahara neighborhood. The area is currently represented by Brian Benford, who's not running for re-election. The two candidates who are running... Uh, there are two candidates running for re-elect- for election in the district. Yesterday, we spoke to Marsha Rummel, longtime former alder for this district. Tonight, we speak with the other challenger for this district, Davey Mayer. He's the current vice president of the Sassy Neighborhood Association and former president of Capital Neighborhoods. Mayer spoke with WORT News Director Sholly Pittman yesterday. Davey, thanks for being with me in the studio. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us why you're running for District 6. Sure. Well, I've been involved uh, in in neighborhood organizations for the last 20-some years, first in Capital Neighborhoods and later in the Sassy Neighborhood. And during that time, I saw how powerful neighbors can be in influencing city government, which I feel local politics has the most day-to-day influence on our lives. Um, Over that time, I had the honor of serving with a number of different alders, seeing what they do, um, and being interested in that job. But it was specifically this term with an open seat in District 6 that... Um, I was encouraged to finally run for Alder. And what would you say are the top three issues impacting District 6? Sure. The top three issues on my platform that I'm running on are abundant affordable housing, uh, world-class people-first transit infrastructure, and building an equitable city with opportunity for everyone. Okay. So let's start with zoning. Recently, the Common Council has passed a number of zoning changes from family redefinition to transit overlay, essentially to create more density in the city. How do you see that impacting your district and how would you vote on that if elected? Well, as you know, we have the bus rapid transit will be going right through the middle of the district down East Washington Avenue. Uh, which will then bring about a transit-oriented district uh, surrounding that. Um, so we expect to see more development there. I think that's, you know, affordable housing isn't just the rent that you pay. It's other um, prices and costs that come on top of that. So you build affordable housing out in the boonies, people still have to have a car to get anywhere. But you put them on a great bus network, and I'm someone who's used the bus all my life, you know, that you can possibly eschew car ownership and find cost savings that way. 
what more do you think needs to happen for affordable housing? What do you see next? We certainly need, well, on the on the isthmus with the cost of land, it's very unlikely that we'd have affordable housing that wasn't built without some sort of subsidies or other incentives. So we need to look at further increasing the affordable housing fund, which the mayor has done over, over the last term. We need to continue to support that and hopefully with the growth of the tax base through other developments, through market rate housing and such, we can afford that and justify those those costs because it's very important that we have um, uh, folks uh, downtown who would need that sort of housing. Okay. Well, let's turn to transit. So again, as you mentioned, bus rapid transit will uh, be run kind of right through the heart of your district. What do you have to say about some of the um, maybe smaller neighborhood level concerns about having to walk a few more blocks um, in some cases? That's certainly a concern. Um, as a lifelong Madison resident, I've long relied on the bus system and, and still do to this day. I'm optimistic that you know the city staff had the best intentions when they did the metro redesign to have fewer routes with greater frequency in order to make it more reliable. But we also have to understand that many people choose to live in a place that will have a close proximity to a bus stop. So if some of those have changed, that may alter their patterns, especially when you consider someone who may use a wheelchair, the difference between one block and four blocks to a bus stop is enormous. So we certainly need to um, continue to evaluate those changes to see how they're impacting people and if further adjustments need to be made. Another issue facing the Common Council every term, but especially this term, are policing changes. We have a new Office of Independent Monitor. We have a somewhat new Civilian Oversight Board. And we also have some other changes coming to the Madison Police Department, including a pilot program for body cameras. You know, that's still being drafted, but it's expected to come before the council again. What's your perspective on body cameras? Would you vote for them? Um, it's a complex issue. Obviously, people have different ideas about it. You know, we have an issue of uh, domestic violence situations that you might have recordings of, of children or other folks where you need to know how to handle that uh, should it become part of the pu- public record. So if we're going to use body cams, we need to have a very robust um, process for how to deal with that footage, how to make sure that it's protected and how it stays you know, in the, in the public domain if it should be. Um, but at the same time, it is an enormous expense, and there's questions about the efficacy of it. Does it does it prevent police brutality and misconduct? Or does it merely document it? And could that money be used in better ways to reduce and change uh, harm created by the police department? So not sure yet on how you'd vote? I'm still interested to hear more about it, especially if we do this trial program, which we should go forward with. It's still being drawn up because, again, they are struggling, I believe, with those policy decisions. Um, we can see how that goes and then move forward. And policing is, of course, a huge uh, issue and more than we can get to here. But are there any other maybe structural changes that you would propose if elected alder? Um, I certainly support the CARES team and would like to see that um, expanded. Um, When someone's facing a mental health crisis, the last thing they need to see is a uniformed armed officer responding. Um, There's many such things that the police department currently handles that might be better handled by other groups. Um, And I think we should look at possibly reducing the police budget or at least keeping it to the same percentage as it is of the total city budget going forward. And we could possibly do that by attrition as as, uh, officers retire or move on and not uh, backfilling those positions. That's one way that we could bring that down. Let's move on to another issue. F-35s are bedding down in Madison this summer, at least the first of them. And while the Common Council and even statewide government can't really do anything about that at this point, that will still be a big issue hitting the community and it's somewhat close to your district. So could you tell us how you feel about F-35s and um, what, in your view, the Common Council could do, if anything? Well, we're already impacted by the current fighter planes uh, stationed at Truax. They often cause a disruption to daily life in the community, and we know that in the neighborhoods even closer to the airport, there's even a greater disruption. Um, From what we've known is that uh, F-35s will probably be even louder and could cause more disruption. Um, It's unfortunate that uh, leadership higher up did not do more to stop this, but it seems like it's something we're going to have to deal with. One thing, uh, in the Sassy neighborhood, we're discussing ways to possibly uh, monitor some of the sound levels that come from flyovers, Um, not only from military aircraft, but commercial as well. It's very hard for local government to deal with these these things, so we're often just left uh, holding the bag. So a unique part of being an alder is that you have sort of two responsibilities. One is to serve your constituents. The other is to serve the city as a whole. And sometimes those responsibilities 
are in conflict. So let's say that there's a change the city is proposing that a significant portion of your constituents object to. How would you handle moving forward in that situation? Well, my ultimate responsibility is to my constituents, the people who can or are eligible to vote in this district. Um, I'm running on a platform. I think that's very clear in a number of issues. Those are the things that I will you know, go forward with and I will stay faithful to those. Um, as new things develop, though, certainly things that are unforeseen, um, I will stay in constant contact with my constituents. So I've been involved, again, with neighborhood organizations for 20 years. I feel that their um, input is invaluable in the process, as well as other um, constituents who may not have access to that normal neighborhood process. There's definitely people who don't have the time or the bandwidth to volunteer with neighborhood organizations. They just are very busy in their day-to-day lives. So it's important to do outreach to make sure that all members of the community are represented in well, one uh, last fun question before we wrap up. We've been asking the candidates what their favorite hobbies are or what they do in their free time just to help people get to know you. Could you tell us also about your professional experience? Sure. I, I uh, work for the university um, for a research group called Ice Cube, which has a neutrino detector at the South Pole. Antarctica, no, I have not been to Antarctica, though people like to know that. Um, in my free time, uh, I'd like to spend time at all the uh, local establishments in the area, uh, big avid concert goer. We have many great concert venues in District 6, uh, as well as our summer festival season, which is just around the corner. I help uh, organize and, and uh, volunteer at Atwood Fest, and along with the other festivals. Last summer was the first year that I was able to do at least one volunteer shift at every one of the Festiland festivals, the five festivals on the east side. Wow. Yeah. That's a good weekend dedication project. It's exhausting, but it's very <laughs> valuable. And I also have been a uh, poll worker and chief inspector for the last 12 years. Evie, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> thank you. And uh, uh, voters, if they're interested, they can find more information about me at votedavy.com. I've been speaking with Davy Mayer. He's facing challenger Marsha Rummel for a seat on the Common Council this spring. And he and Rummel will compete in a District 6 Alder Forum this Wednesday, the 22nd at the Tinsmith. It starts at 6 p.m. and will be moderated by Isthmus publisher Jason Joyce. Yesterday, dozens of nurses at Unity Point Health Meritor rallied outside the hospital building holding signs that read, Patients Over Profits and Nurses for Quality Care. They were demonstrating for better staffing ratios, raises that reflect inflation, and for holidays to include Martin Luther King Jr. Day and Juneteenth. WORT reporter Greg Jaboski was on the scene to talk more about their demands. Hey, hey, ho, ho, union buses gotta go! Hey, hey, ho, ho, union buses gotta go! Earlier this month, a two-year contract between Unity Point Meritor Hospital and its nurses, represented by the Service Employees International Union Wisconsin, the SEIU, came to an end. Negotiations for a new contract have been difficult, with nurses saying that their main demands, including pay that keeps pace with inflation, increased safety procedures, and a commitment to retaining nurses and maintaining proper staffing levels, has not been met by Meritor management. Yesterday afternoon, a rally of about 100 was held on a street near the hospital entrance. WORTS2 Meritor nurses who are on the union bargaining team, Rihanna Gatton and Lavanda Hayes, what their workdays have been like. They described them and also addressed some claims of economic hardship made by Meritor management. So average day at work would probably be um, having a patient every half hour to an hour uh, because I work in a recovery unit. So we're getting them fresh out. So uh, unfortunately, because we have been dealing with a lot of sick people lately, actually two more of our nurses just had COVID. Um, we are uh, having to now make the OR wait and hold on to a patient, which just to give an idea, OR space for holding a, is basically the most expensive real estate within the hospital. So you're talking about potentially charging a patient an extra, I want to say it's close to $1,000 a minute, which is not an exaggeration, $1,000 a minute, since my real estate in recovery is then the next most expensive at about $100 a minute. So it's quite expensive and it's really overstaffed and I'm a very efficient nurse not I said ever so humbly but even my myself I can only get a patient out sit around my area within about 15-ish minutes and even then we're still having to hold 
the nurses back in the OR, sorry, the patients back in the OR because we just can't handle it right now. So we come in on the back end when he sends them to us. The nurses on the floor, they get from three to five to six patients or more. And so we have to get them out, discharge them if possible. And then as soon as we discharge, we get another patient coming in. And normally we get about two to three admissions per one or two discharges. And then we have to have also called the PACU and let them know they have to hold the patient because we're waiting on the room to get clean so we can even take this patient. And so our turnaround is a little bit longer than his is because of the wait time for the cleaning and stuff. We don't get a chance, the nurses on the floor don't get a chance to get a uh, breath in because one, we got the patient we already have, two, we discharge the patient, and then three, we're running to get this admission or whatever. So uh, we always work in short. We have been short uh, of nurses since the pandemic. Let's just say that because a lot of them are getting burnt out. A lot of them are leaving. Also, we're teaching. We're being preceptors on top of that with being charged and also with having patients. So we kind of do a roundabout thing. He has to hold them. We have to, you know, (laughs) take care of them, get them, and then also dangle uh, how, well, rearrange how we do things to even accept more patients on top of the other jobs that us nurses are doing. I just want to emphasize a point that she actually hit on in there because they have to ask us to hold on to a patient because they don't have the the nurses that they need. Again, we are charging a patient $100 a minute to hold them within PACU. And then we have to ask OR to hold on to their patient, which then is charging that patient $1,000 per minute. Because we don't charge like for Tylenol, Ibuprofen, Dilaudid, Oxycodone. We have to charge a patient a flat rate of so much per minute. So they are literally getting charged $100 a minute or $1,000 a minute, depending on where they're being held, when they don't need to be held in those areas because of lack of nurses. And that's the fight that we are fighting. Patient ratio, patient safety is number one because if you don't have that correct ratio, you don't have enough nurses, then it's the patient that's suffering. In essence, it is us, but the patient is suffering financially, emotionally, and mentally. That's what we're fighting for and fighting for our community so we can give darn good care that we already do to continue to give darn good care. A lot of the floor managers, the managers who are our direct managers, and they're actually quite supportive of their nurse. But they are being told from then those that are above them that they don't have the money or resource to, to allocate to be able to hire on more nurses or to be able to pay us a fair livable wage or to even be able to update the equipment that we have, <laughs> which is just insanity since all of this is obviously going to equate to much less tolerable patient outcome. That's just the reality of the situation. Not to mention the retention of it where that people have hit on. And they're stating that, you know, the economy is bad for them and that they can't afford these kinds of things. Well, I've done my own private research and I've seen that they make $5.9 billion in revenue every year. I've seen how much their executives are making at $900,000 a year plus. I think that we can probably take from them and potentially pass it on to what is needed for the patient if they want to take. They're trying to divide us, put us against each other, older against the younger. So we're trying to keep the younger person Younger people trying to keep the older people and keep the people that's in the middle, keep everything together until management open their eyes. I think this kind of hits on a much larger theme that we're seeing from leadership. It's a strategy. Their strategy this time has been divide. They're not offering anything of substance. They're not offering anything beyond a 1.75% raise in pet insurance. And uh, so what, like LaVonda said, they're trying to divide younger nurses from older nurses and trying to make it seem like the older nurses are greedy. They're also doing the exact same thing with my particular unit. I'm considered a non-24-7 unit. And they're making it seem like all non-24-7 units, which are the perioperative services, our digestive health center, our infusions clinic, are also greedy, whiny little kids trying to take from the floor nurses. And if we would give up some of the things that we have within the contract, that they would somehow be able to solve the world's problems. That's just not appropriate, especially when you're making $4.9 billion in revenue every year. Those were Unity Point Meritor nurses Rhiannon Gatton and Lavanda Hayes of SEIU Wisconsin speaking to WRT yesterday at a rally at the hospital. For WRT News, I'm Greg Jabosky. Every Tuesday, we check in with the Daily Cardinal for the latest news coming from the UW-Madison campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Madeline Afonso spoke with Daily Cardinal reporter Noel Goldhaber about plans to renovate several residence halls on campus. 
your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso, joined today by news writer Noe Goldhaber to talk about new dorm renovations and accessibility. Thank you so much for being here, Noe. Thanks for having me, Maddie. Can you explain what your story is about and why you wanted to write about it? Um, so the story kind of goes in two parts, but two related parts. Um, the first is a set of renovations that are set to happen in some older dorms in the Lakeshore residential community. Um, and it would be like a ton of facilities upgrades to some cool historical older buildings, um, you know, including updated water systems, just like general common spaces, heating and cooling, all sorts of things that'll make those like older buildings a little nicer for residents who get to live there. Um, and then another important part of the renovations is that it'll add elevators in several of the Cronsage buildings that currently don't have elevators, which will increase the number of accessible dorms in that region. Can you expand a little bit more on what the renovations will be like for students? So according to the Wisconsin Capital Budget, which has kind of the information um, about the renovations, it'll include bathroom updates, a new heating and cooling system in common spaces, updated fire and smoke detection, and elevator construction to increase the number of accessible dorms. What is the reputation of some of the dorms that are being renovated? So I spoke to Savannah Rostad and she kind of enjoyed some of the historical aspects of her dorms, but then she also did note that like everyone on her entire floor has to share one warm shower because in general, it, these dorms have really beautiful like old wood and old features and facilities, but they're not always the most practical and the nicest on campus. So they don't have the reputation for being the nicest dorms, I guess you would say. How did students react to news of the renovations? Um, so Savannah was excited that, you know, future residents of her dorm would have, you know, some nicer amenities and, you know, that Cronsage, Humphrey, and Jorns, the three dorms that are kind of covered in this, the facilities in those dorms would kind of match like some of the benchmarks that other newer dorms and like updated dorms have at this point, you know? So I think that's exciting. Um, I think whenever there's construction on campus, there's always concern about like what disruption that'll cause. Um, like you can go back to even just like recently with the Celery Residence Hall and how like, you know, they needed free laundry for forever and there were noise complaints and all sorts of issues with UW housing. So I think there's concerns with that just in terms of like the timeline of the project and that sort of thing. But I think in general, students are excited to have the buildings updated and are, you know, trust that like the nice historical aspects of the buildings won't be like harmed in that process. How did this relate to disability and accessibility on campus? Yeah, so I talked to Emmett Lockwood, who is a house fellow in Phillips, which is a dorm pretty close to all of these. And he was a resident, a resident of Phillips and he has several disabilities. So he kind of talked about um, different resources on campus for individuals with disabilities and what it means to have a physical disability that will impact your access to UW housing. And one of the main points he said in terms of the elevators that are going to be added to these dorms is that kind of A, addressing like infrastructure when we're talking about accessibility is like step number one in terms of like making sure our campus is a, a good place for disabled students and B, elevators are kind of number one in that like subcategory, you know, that, that these are things that we should already be doing, but it's good that we're starting to. Did anything surprise you about the connection between dorms and accessibility? I think as someone who's like able-bodied, it's so easy to just like not think about it. And, and it's also surprising to think about how it fits into such a larger problem on campus. Um, one of the things that wasn't really covered in the scope of the article, but what something I did talk about with Emmett Lockwood is how like these concerns from disabled students on campus have been going on for so long about like, you know, Madison is built on a hill and we have a ton of really old buildings that don't meet ADA accessible standards. And like there are problems in, in terms of housing and the accessibility of housing, which again, also ties into like the housing crisis in Madison. Those issues also have to do with like larger problems of making sure that like our campus is accessible for disabled students. So I think that was interesting for sure. What else did you learn or find 
most interesting while reporting the story besides, you know, the connection to campus being accessible? I think another thing that I was just researching right before this, because I kind of wanted, it wasn't something, again, that fit within the scope of the article, but was super interesting, is Emmett Lockwood discussed how the Public History Project, which I know the Cardinal has done a lot of reporting on, discussed disability in the classroom and kind of the formation of the McBurney Disability Center. And Lockwood discussed how, like, the McBurney, McBurney Disability Center can address accessibility issues on the individual level, but kind of on the overarching campus level, there isn't really an entity that's doing that sort of work. And that's where bigger entities like UW Housing and, and any other umbrella on campus needs to do the work to make sure that like their facilities and just their systems are accessible for students. Is there anything else you'd like to share or think readers should know about this topic? Well, I would encourage people to, I can send Maddie the link, but I would encourage people to read the the kind of the formation of the McBurney Center because I think it's super interesting. And yeah, I think that, that would be my drive home point. <laughs> awesome, thank you so much, Snowy. Yeah, thanks for having me. news, the Baki Recreation and Wellbeing Center is scheduled to open on April 24th. The new center, replacing the natatorium, will have spaces dedicated to supporting mental health and well-being services, a recreational pool, basketball courts, an ice rink, a climbing and bouldering wall, sports simulators, multi-purpose studios, an indoor jogging track, and a rooftop fitness area. With the opening of the Baki, two other Recwell facilities will close the Shell on April 19th, and the Holt Fitness Center on April 2nd. Though the buildings will stay, the Shell will return to UW Athletics domain, and the upper floor of the Frank Holt Center will return to university housing. The university's Field Day Lab released a new complex video game called Wake Tales from the Aqualab a life sciences-focused game to engage middle and high school students in the classroom. Wake has garnered 7,000 plays around the country per month so far. Field Day is a research lab and design studio where lab participants work with teachers through a fellowship program along with student interns. Jobs range from game producers to engineers, education specialists, creative directors, game designers, artists, and user interface designers. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg gets ready for spring and looks at how our local birds build their nests. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I thought I'd talk about nest building by birds because we are right in that time period where birds are starting to make their nests, and some are already done with it, but it really depends on your species. So I know a lot of people ask, what nest is this? Or some Sometimes they'll take a photo and they'll ask, hey, can you help us identify this nest? And as rehabilitators, we have to be ready for any sort of question from the public related to wildlife. And a lot of us on staff, at least at the Humane Society, are bird experts. So we love being able to try to identify what people are asking us and especially trying to figure out the really fun puzzle that comes down to what nest is this? So the first things we think about are nest materials. So there's a lot of different materials that birds that build nests will use. Sometimes it's just twigs, and then other times it's just dried leaves. Otherwise, they use dry grass a lot of times, and then also their own feathers. So they do actually create what's called a brood patch during the breeding season, which means that they're plucking the feathers that are around kind of their lower belly region to help insulate the nest mixed with a lot of those other types of substrates. They also use moss at times, bark strips, pine needles. And I thought one of the coolest things in my mind is the birds that use 
alternative substrates like snakeskin, which is apparently favored by the great crested flycatchers in our area, and spider silk, which is a lot of our small birds like warblers, but especially hummingbirds if you've ever seen those nests, which are tiny itty bitty nests with cup shaped little, just a small enough thing for two little itty bitty baby hummingbirds to sit in. Uh, They're by far my favorite nest. (laughs) But the reason they might use something like snakeskin or spider silk is because the nest can actually stretch a little bit and become a little bit more bouncy or more giving so that when the babies are growing, they can actually accommodate a little bit of extra room. And I think that's pretty amazing, honestly, for birds to have the foresight to be able to use those types of materials instead of having to change the nest as the babies grow. Now, we also have a lot of different species here in Wisconsin that use mud to construct their nests, sometimes their own saliva to make it wet. But usually you're talking our swallow species, so like barn swallow, cliff swallow. A lot of your Phoebes will use a mixture of mud and moss. And then robins definitely sticks in mud and a lot of different things. And then we get to a lot of our urban birds, which unfortunately use the garbage we throw away, which can be very dangerous. But they'll use plastic strips from plastic bags and tinsel and uh, plastic wrap and foil and even dryer lint and none of which of those are great. I mean, they're usable, but they're not great for the birds. And it's something to kind of consider when you're outside and the snow is melting and maybe we can start cleaning up some of that trash that's left over on the roadsides because you know we're going to get multiple birds that come in every year with something wrapped around their legs or they are dangling from a tree because they're stuck in garbage only because they wanted to build their nest with the material we're leaving behind. So definitely better for them to have some more safe substrate. Um, And then we get our cavity nesting birds, which are things like chickadees and woodpeckers, etc. Sometimes they're just drilling their own nests into the trees sides, so making a hole or cavity or reusing one from another species. But then we also get the ones that are ground nesters, so killdeers and I could even say more like our morning doves, which are platform nesters, but really, really basic nests. You know, they're not going to be on the ground most of the time, but they might be on a, a raised planter bed, which makes them fairly safe from predation but not all the time. And then our ground nesting birds are the ones that are at most risk of predation, especially from mammalian species like raccoons that might try to invade the nest and eat them. So that might be our ducks. It could be, you know, the killdeer, like I mentioned, which are pretty common to breed around this area. Um, A lot of your shorebird species are going to nest like that. So depending on where you live and what kind of habitat your uh, surroundings are, that's going to probably help determine what nest and what bird it's coming from. So one other piece of that, which I think is pretty cool, is you can go on to the Cornell uh, Lab of Ornithology website and they have a really cool feeder watch type of program where you can select what type of nest you're seeing and then also what kind of habitat or region that you're in and it will shuffle around the species that are most common in your area to give you a better idea of what nest you might have in your backyard. And of course, the best way is probably just to observe the nest from a far distance with a pair of binoculars and just see what kind of birds visit the nest and see if they're bringing nesting material to that area. Sometimes it's a dense tree, but if you see a repeating pattern of a bird coming back and forth and back and forth, and they've got things in their mouths like dry materials, fluff, and other things, it's probably going to be a bird that's building its nest. Otherwise, you might see birds actually weaving their nests. If we're talking Baltimore Orioles, where they make this beautiful woven cup, I think it's amazing. If you have Baltimore Orioles nesting in your backyard, you are lucky and put out the oranges. They're coming soon. So I know there's a lot of different nests out there, a lot of different species, but uh, listen for sounds of birds. Look at the nest type, whether it's a cup, a cavity, a mud nest, etc. Look how big the nest is, because if it's only a few inches across, it could be a hummingbird. Otherwise, if it's really, really large, bigger than a human, we're talking maybe a raptor or an eagle, right? Because their nests are huge. So no matter what kind of nest you have in your backyard, you know, it, it's really exciting at this time of year to be able to see babies being born, their parents sitting on the eggs and raising them, and take a careful watch to make sure that no babies are falling out and getting themselves injured or that they uh, are at risk of predation, where that is naturally going to happen to a lot of our, our young species. But if it's something where it's your dog or your cat, for example, you know, if you can try to keep them indoors during this time period as the babies are growing and hatching and falling, that's going to save a lot of bird lives. So keep your cats indoors, you know, keep your dogs on leash or 
at least, you know, be with them in the backyard so you can help monitor that because baby bird season is just around the corner and it's going to be a big one this year, I think. Really great information out there um, on the internet, especially the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. I think they have a really comprehensive guide, but also Birds of North America has a really excellent website that you do need to have a subscription for, but has a lot of different details. But if you're ever unsure, you can always call a rehabilitator and see if they can help you out to figure out what kind of nest it might be. So give us a call if you ever have a question about an animal that you find, sick, injured, orphaned, or a type of nest that you may be not sure about, or if you need help strategizing what's going to happen next and plan for the babies coming. You know, we know that sometimes they don't build their nests in the best spots, and it can be a challenge trying to mitigate those circumstances. Uh, We're here to help give advice as needed. But also keep in mind that birds' nests, once the eggs are laid, are federally protected if they are a native species as part of the Bird Migratory Treaty Act here in the United States. So no nests, no feathers, no eggs, nothing can be taken. They are protected until those babies leave the nest. Thanks for listening today here on WORT. This has been a segment about birds and their bird nests during the nesting season. If you have any questions, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And otherwise, thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was my co-host, John K. Wilson. Hey. Uh, Your reporters were Abigail Levins, Jessica Lindell, and Greg Jaboski. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Madeline Afonso, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate, I don't know how to say Nate's last name. Weggy Hout. Weggy Hout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm your host, John K. Wilson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with the Nuestro Patio. Good night. Good night.